Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. David King is our guest on um, Think Humanities podcast today. Uh, David is uh, uh, honoring us with uh, a part two of our podcast. Uh, last week on the podcast, we talked about uh, his um, his current book, uh, which is out uh, and, and doing really well across uh, the nation and, and the world, uh, because it's, it's doing well in, in Europe too, The Trial of uh, Adolf Hitler. And we had an extensive, um, fascinating conversation about that book. And if you want to uh, hear that conversation, that's on our podcast, uh, on our website and on iTunes and on SoundCloud. Uh, and that's part one of our conversation with David. Um, this uh, will be a little bit different because we're going to talk about uh, his other books. Uh, he's written four uh, in his uh, career, Finding Atlantis, A True Story of Genius, Madness, and the Extraordinary Quest for a Lost World, Vienna, uh, 1814, Death in the City of Light, and then the uh, we mentioned the trial of uh, Adolf Hitler. Uh, David was, uh, he's a, a Woodford County, Kentucky native, lives in Lexington, Kentucky now. He uh, was a professor at the University of Kentucky in the History uh, and Honors Department. Uh, he was uh, fortunate enough uh, to, to uh, have a master's from Cambridge and, and a Fulbright uh, that he studied in Sweden, which is uh, a part of the intrigue of one of uh, his uh, books. But he returned to Kentucky, thank goodness, um, and is uh, living here now and raising a family and in writing and researching, and David, again, it's great to have you here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So we, we did talk about the trial, um, and um, again, I guess sort of not taking it uh, in, in the order of, uh, that you wrote these, uh, but The Death in the City of uh, Light came out when? When was uh, that published? The, um, <clears throat> the American, the hardback was 2011. 2011. Um, the paperback in 2012, the true story of a brutal serial killer who terrorized uh, a Nazi-occupied Paris during World War II. And I think I'm just going to turn the mic over to David and, and let him describe uh, the discovery of this story. If you can kind of set the stage for us, uh, David, where you were, what you were doing uh, in, in Paris... Uh, and how you discovered uh, what eventually became this book. It, interesting, when I uh, discovered the, the story for this, um, I was writing another book um, and just preparing a lecture. I taught at UK at the time, and I was getting ready to give a lecture on World War II. And was taking a break, and I was at a bookstore, friend's bookstore here in town at the Lexington Public Library, and I found a... a a book that looked kind of interesting, and I was like, huh, what's this? And it was like a, a memoir, and it mentioned this serial killer in, in Paris. Like, what? I've never heard of this. And I, I was like, huh, huh, that's it. okay. And I'll, I, read it. I was like, is this fiction? I wasn't really sure, and I, I talked to uh, Raymond Betts again. I asked him about this. I said, have you heard of this? The, the, the historian, uh, the history professor from the University of Kentucky. Yes. Yes, and one of your one of your uh, mentors and one of your your uh, people that you really look up to. Oh yes, yeah, one of my favorite people who've ever walked on this planet. <laughs> he um, 
asked him about this and he had a second PhD in, in, in France and he hadn't heard of it either. So I was like, huh, that's interesting. Now, I, I, had, I was writing uh, Finding Atlantis at the time and I already had Vienna lined up. So I was like, okay, well, I'll put it on the side. I, you know, I read it, it was interesting, and, uh, but it, I got into it. Oh, it is, it is true. I mean, it's, um, it's about uh, Dr. Peccio, who's this, uh, who's a physician, a doctor, a former mayor of a small town, very charming, very mm, witty in a way. He collected art, uh, loved music. He had free medical care to the poor at his practice. It turns out he was doing some scams on the side to, with, with the state, but it turned out he, but he did not charge the people for the medical mm. care. Uh, but he is a uh, was a brutal serial killer. He um, I, I looked at every possible way could he be innocent, but um, he he will be charged with twenty seven murders. And when they eventually catch him on trial, he's like, no, I did not kill 27. I killed 63, and you have the wrong people. And he will claim to be a resistance fighter, killing Germans and collaborators. But um, he had a, a very wicked, devious scheme. Uh, he, cause he, gets brutally, he gets brutally rich, off, I mean, just from his killings. I mean, he's the most profitable serial killer that I've ever encountered. He... Uh, he basically says, if you want to leave Paris, I can get you out. He gets the word out in the underground, and um, he has recruiters in a, in a hair salon. And, and uh, particularly to, uh, to, to, to Jews, Jews, who were, of course, being persecuted. And, and his, um, his scheme was to advertise to them through various means to have them come to his, his residence, was it? He, he I've, one, I've, one time at the beginning he, he changes it he he has a meet at a separate place and they'll be taken there he he, he he he's learning from his method but but, but generally he'd have a meet and, he, and he, he took him to this other building that he that he purchased in a very nice part of paris and it's, it's also jews it's also gangsters and there are a few gangsters and some prostitutes because he's into drugs he's into a lot of interesting things and i mean i learned a lot about nazi occupied paris and it's a it's a it's a dark dark yeah. time how um, did you learn about him how did you learn about that part of now the historical record of 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 what paris was like might, might be be there but how did you learn about him i learned the most uh i had some credible uh good fortune when i was in paris working at one of the archives at the police station actually and I asked if I could use, they have all these classified files that have never been used. And I asked if I could use them. They're like, no, no. And I was okay. So I just used all the public sources that I could get a hold of. But while I was there, um, I started talking to the archivists. And they were, they were wonderful and they were interested. And one day when I said, come, let me, let's go talk to my boss. And, and, and she, we talked for a little bit. And within a few minutes she let me have all the files all the classified files and never still classified and had not been opened to the public or to researchers since world war ii and so she let me ha let me have the entire thing and um no restrictions uh i couldn't take any pictures with my, with my camera um which is okay i'm old school i write i handwrite my notes um i stand out like a sore thumb in the archives because I, 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 I type, it's not that I, you know, don't type, I use a computer at home, I type very fast, but I prefer to write it. I prefer to handwrite it. I don't want anything to go wrong. I feel like I process it, I'm thinking more, 
because I, I type so fast, it's mechanical, and it's just mm. my mind will wander. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. want to be focused, and so I handwrite. So I probably stood out, but mm. so they brought all the files in like the next day, and it was so that's when I learned the most about because uh, there had there had been there had been a book in English, but it had been thirty years at that point, and uh, but the files, I mean. No, supposedly. So describe the room to me. Were, were you you were still in the the police department uh, archives? Uh, you, 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 did you have windows? Uh, had windows? Yeah. Uh, you were in. Uh, they, they put them all out on a table in boxes. They bring the boxes yeah. in. Uh, yes, they, they they brought in these giant cartons, and uh, they're red and just bright red cartons. And just I, I asked for you know just one at a time. I think they brought two at a time, so I could. But I mean, I go through it. Uh, I handwrite. I, I had the entire file in you, my files now. You, you rewrote. <laughs> yes. You rewrote the files. Pretty much. Uh, and then, of course, they, they, they were in do, French. Yes, they're all in French. Uh, Most so, of them French so we established uh, in in the last podcast that you read uh, uh, you read German uh, and and you're fluent in in uh, Scandinavian languages and 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 now Fran- French. So you wrote those out in longhand. Yes. Yes, so I, uh, and, and, and some, some of them are kind of hard to read though. When I get tired after, like, yeah. I mean, I I was I'm obsessed. I mean, I, I would sit I would sit the whole day the whole time. I, I'd break for you know bathroom or something, but you know I just sit and just write, write, write. So you can tell when I'm getting a little tired with <laughs> with with, with uh, my hands. Writer's but, cramp would would become natural. <laughs> yeah, but that, that that way I feel like I know the material. I can present it um and again i i you know everything that's major um you know some of the things were repetitive um was it written in a um a narrative style or or uh that that you uh could could sort of follow it linearly or was it something that it was police files it was was police files (laughs) their interrogations their searches of an apartment supposedly they never talked to his son supposedly they never talked to his maids but they did so I was able to read. He had a couple of maids. They interviewed them. Very helpful information. Uh, and also with the with the Nazi book too. I mean, I have like I have all the police files. That's another so for the for the Hitler book, but and which were great because it helped you recreate how a place looks by what they find. Almost like Pompeii, you know, reverse. Yeah. Like we have that with the Nazi thing yeah. too. Like recreate exactly what the par- party office looked like uh-huh. when the police raided it. Uh-huh. And you could do this with, with his house, which is, um, you know, they had a, <clears throat> it was a, because he collected art. So it was just a, a, a wild mess of, of things. Um, he had a pit, a lime pit, they found in the back with, with bodies. and um, Where he would discard the body parts, uh, the lime would uh, uh, would dissolve the, right. the flesh and uh, to the bone. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, he had this, this uh, unusual room, a triangular room, which people were trying to figure out what that was for. Um, it was a very strange room. I think I th- get the police files helped me figure out what I think it is that, and that that, that was different from what you 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 normally see about Petio. I mean, about how they didn't even know how he killed him, and it didn't come out in the trial, and the police were not a hundred percent sure. But I think. I think I think it, uh, we know how he did it now, but um, it was, well, it was, can you tell us without yeah, going I, I, into yeah, too many uh, gruesome details? Well, but. Um, I, I think I think he gassed them, uh-huh. and uh, he because of this, I think there's the clues in this triangular room. The way he 
we built this room and making it so tight, so airtight. And uh, again, I found some, the interrogations with the people who built the room or did the renovations and just looking at the changes that they made, looking at the companies that he hired that had done some major projects and looking at it during the time with uh, because of his position as a doctor and talking to a lot of his patients. And, and he, he was writing this very seedy part of Paris. So he had, uh, so the, the book is to help us get right into, you know, to Gestapo and resistance fighters and the prostitutes and the gangsters and the drug dealers. And Petio was right in the middle of that. And so he, he knew of a lot of developments, like, I mean, plus with this medical practice, gas, gassing being. Mm. Um, he, he had access to he, it. Yes, and he, he talked about, you know, making it soundproof and that, that's how he presented it to the um, mm. engineers and the construction people. Were but, there records of um, uh, psychiatric examinations or interviews that he gave? Uh, so, so what yes. was his motive? Uh, yes. Or what did he reveal? We, we, we got his files because he was in a, a mental hospital in and out many times. And they, they were not, it was not clear. There were difference of opinion on if, he's really, if he really was faking the symptoms, as he claimed at one point, because uh, his doctor, you know, there was a debate um, with his lawyer, should he claim insanity? But he he wouldn't he didn't want to do it at the trial. He's like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, he, you know, they, they they will build statues to me. I'm a hero. I'm killing I'm killing traitors, and he that that's his line. So that his lawyer, who had he had one of the best uh, criminal lawyers at the time, um, and he. There was some discussion about about taking that defense, and but he, he and people were like, why do you do it? Well, Petio mm-hmm. was not gonna, was mm-hmm. not about to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we have those files um, with the the psychiatrist. The Gestapo captured him at one point, and we had those files. Um, well, the police not the not the full file. The police had had requested um, those files from the mm-hmm. Germans. So we had mm-hmm. what the police got from the Germans. So how and, did? Um he, he was, of course, found guilty. Yes. A- and was he was he killed? Yes, he oh. was executed. Yes, and he uh, guillotine. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, it so there are so many mysteries with that case. Um, again, how no one knows how many people he killed. Still, um, how much money he made. Uh, I think I know where he buried or he uh, what he did. How he hid some of the some of the treasure got got away um and fi- finding just some oral discussions from the former gangsters who tried to find his treasure um so i have that in the book i don't want to reveal all that i will yeah. be like but it's yeah uh, it's in it's the book. like a treasure <laughs> but, um yeah and i mean to, to how he killed them yeah. and like for example he a lot of people thought he was drugging them to mm-hmm. kill them and what i think he was doing is he was he was drugging them but not to kill not that was not how he killed them. Um, I think he drugged them, uh, for example, because when he would, when it, when it would get a victim, where the Jew or a prostitute or a gangster, they would write postcards to their family members, and because his line was, "If you want to get out of Paris," and a lot of people wanted to get out of Nazi-occupied Paris, he said, "I can get you out. Bring all your valuables in two suitcases, and we have a team. We'll smuggle you out of Nazi-occupied Paris, and we'll." get you out of the country through the mountains and eventually take to Portugal or Spain and put you on a boat 
to Argentina, where you have someone who give you a fake passport, you know, fake passport, mm -hmm. of new life in Argentina. So they would they would write these postcards, which show up to family members saying, "Oh, life is great in Argentina. Come." And sometimes I, I think he was really, and a lot of them really were. I mean, the the family members say, "Yeah, this is the, this is this is their writing. This is their." And I think mm -hmm. he was, I think he, because they were, but it's also kind of a little. Mm -hmm. So I think he was kind of drugging them to weaken the resistance before he did some other things. And does your evidence, um, your research show that he acted alone? That's another good question. I, I, he did not act uh, alone because he, um, the question is who all helped and how much, but he, cause he, he definitely had no one would, he had recruiters, um, like in the hair salon, uh, one's a former actor in a, like silent movies who's kind of fallen on hard times. And, the question, how much did they really know about what they were doing? Did, did they, because they may have believed, you know, they may really believe that they were helping people get out. So how much did they know about the ultimate fate of the people they sent? Because he had a, you know, um, he used a fake fake name, of course, and for his organization. And uh, and I, I think he had some other helpers, too, that I, that I revealed in the book i mean I, I think it's almost uh but in the book because it because everything's true it's all nonfiction. if i'm speculating i make it clear i'm speculating because there's some things we just do not know mm -hmm. and you know it, you know this is one thing where nonfiction is very different from fiction sometimes you just don't know and you know maybe maybe we'll find out later or mm -hmm. They're just things you know. You can't you can't wrap up yeah. everything. We won't wrap up everything with the book because we just, some things that no one no one knows. Um, well, let me talk uh, to you a little bit about um, uh, process, uh, technique, your, your your writing style, if you will. Uh, we we touched on that in uh, the first uh, podcast, but uh, I'm curious about whether or not you were. Uh, doing all this research, um, uh, writing it out in longhand. Um, did you begin to write while you were in Paris, or did you collect? Or are you one that collects everything and then comes back and it's spread out all over your uh, your writing room, I guess? And I don't know if you tack it up on walls, on sticky notes, or whatever. Tell tell me about how you put all that together. When, when I'm in the archive, I'm I'm just getting the, the material. And so I'll write it. if it's in French, I'll write it in French or German and German. And so we just, we, you know, I just I write it that way because, well, it's faster. Because uh, translating is translating is, is, is always a challenge. You know, you could, you could drive yourself crazy trying to get the exact word. And then later on, if you have a question about it, you know, you want to know, okay, what, what was the word that they said as opposed to, okay, well, there are a lot of words for the, you know, you, could, you can get confused that mm -hmm. way. So I, I write it that way. It's faster and it seems to help. It's, and um, I come back later and I, and I go through it. And I like to have a, um, I don't like to go to the archives the very first thing because I like to read everything in English first that exists on the subject that I can. I try to, and the subjects I choose, you pretty much can read everything in English. And the book now, you can do it in minutes, it's not much. Mm. But uh, I try to do everything that's in English first and then, okay. Like in the the, the, in the Pecci, okay, what about all the French books? Or the there was a, there was one German book from a long time ago. You know, try to read. Okay, what do we know if we only read English? Okay, what do we know if uh, read the German and the French and any other language that mm. I can find? Okay, now, now I want to try to get my thoughts together, and then I like to <clears throat> hit the archives to 
because I feel like I'm more efficient mm-hmm. instead of just going in and because there there, there, there are always so many ways uh, you could take something and I, you want to do the best that you possibly can. I, I, to me, that works the best. Uh, just during the writing process, do you write every day? Um, I I will write. The beginning, I, I no, I wouldn't say I write every day. I um, Monday to Friday, I, I love writing. I mean, I, it's, it's fun. It's um, it's like uh, like like some people like video games. I, mean, I get the, I, yeah. I enjoy, I enjoy. You're it. right. I, um, <laughs> for the uh, most part, I, early I, morning, all day. Are, are you? Yeah, I know you have two young children. Uh, in, in the old days, I, I I loved writing at night. I just would just much faster. I could write, you know, five times faster at night. Um, now with the, when I have kids, I reverse that. Uh, so I write more during the day, and it, it's, it's worked a lot better than I thought. I, I was like, this it'll never work. But, you know, <laughs> it, it has worked out better than I thought. So I, I I'll write, and then I will um, just get away from it. I'm always reading. I love to read, so I'll, and I'll go read, and so I, I I'll write something and I'll put it away for a while, and I won't write for on it for you know. Do you have a word limit or a page limit uh, uh, in your process? of what you want to accomplish in, in a day or a week? I, I have a kind of a strange system. Um, I, 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 I race to the end as fast as I can get. Like I'll, I'll try to get something down, um, just fast and just banging it out mm-hmm. as fast as I can go. So I'll, I'll get a draft very fast, but it's kind of strange. It's, it's, it's almost an insult to call it a draft because it's just get to the end. And then, then, then the real writing I think starts after I figure out, um, you learn, I learn a lot by writing, and you're you're asking questions, and you're like, oh yeah, what about this? Yeah. And, do you do your own editing, or do you have somebody read that first draft? Um, I I am a kind of a tinkerer. I will tinker and play with it forever and ever, and then and never show it. And I've been very fortunate by my editors to turn me loose and not ask to see anything until the very end. Mm-hmm. In fact, look with the Hitler book when my agent took it out, um, she had nine bidders it was a three-day auction and uh, that was a question I had to all the editors i spoke to do you want to see things first and some did and when they did yeah you know, I, I, mm. I i prefer to wait to the end uh-huh. because, and, and i said that because um it could all be cut tomorrow yeah. okay i can show you these 20 pages and it sure. could all be cut and it's mm-hmm. happened i mean yeah. I, I, I threw out like in the hitler book and the vienna book i mean hundreds of pages because the hitler book where were we going to start it yeah. And I started when he first got to Munich and I was hundreds of pages into it. And I was like, no, no, it's not working. We haven't even got to the push. So started out with page one. And so yeah. that, that, that was a little tricky, yeah. but, I, but I did that the same thing with Vienna. So I knew we could, you know, you could use yeah. some of it later, but it was, it was way too much. So, so can you tell us a little bit about what you're writing now? Yes. It's another, um, another true story. And it's amazing. Never, um, Never been a book, but it's a it's a it's a change a little bit because uh, my son told me once after reading all these Hitler books, he was like a little kid. He's like, uh, "Why don't you read something nice for a change?" Because he's been Hitler, yeah, and then for that serial killer, and it's yeah. been dark for uh-huh. well over a decade. <laughs> so um, this one's a change. Um, it's in the 1970s, and it's a bank robbery in Stockholm, and uh, it's bank robber comes in comes into the bank he's wearing a, a lady's wig he's got a 
sunglasses on and he fires a submachine gun in the air and says the party starts get down on the floor and he starts taking hostages and they spend six days in the bank vault and this is what gives rise to the stockholm syndrome oh really there's never never been a book in in english Uh, i mean you hear that phrase a lot yes and it's it's an incredible story Uh and it's like um it's because he goes in he demands that sweden's most famous criminal be released from prison and he, he was kind of a he actually made the list his name is Clark Olofsson he made the list of uh, the most influential people in Sweden because it's 70s Sweden he was um, he's kind of like a Jim Morrison of the the doors he's looks a little bit like Jim Morrison of the hmm. doors he's kind of a charismatic he's very poetic he's uh, intellectual of sorts he loves to read he's very popular and it left us Sweden because it's high to the welfare state um, he hits banks, so he's kind of not necessarily a bad guy there. Yeah. So he, he's very popular with yeah. a certain audience. And so the bank robber wants him released, and so the police are debating that. They bring him to the bank, and um, it's uh, and the, the I got the police, they let me into, I mean, well, the Stockholm, I got into all the files. Uh-huh. I'm already, I was in Stockholm a couple months ago. They let yeah. me into, I was worried about this too, because this is 1970s, it's still pretty yeah. recent. Yeah. There were, Europe has, you know, privacy uh-huh. things, issues. And, yeah. But they gave me, they gave me everything again. Your connection so. to Sweden, you, you, you did your, your Fulbright study there. And, in fact, that's where Finding Atlantis, I mean, that it, it, t- t- tell us just a little bit about that. And uh, I, I'm going to uh, go out on the limb here and just ask, uh, is your wife by any chance, did you meet her in Sweden? Uh, we met in England. Oh, okay. Yeah, she is, is Swedish. she Swedish? She is Swedish. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so my kids, uh, we've been raised them, so they they speak Swedish. Well, they understand Swedish. They can yeah. watch TV in Swedish. But so my, what? What did your uh, you you went to uh, with the intention of of studying in Sweden uh, during your Fulbright? Um, what was for what reason? And then and then how did you discover uh, the the character that did you highlight in Finding Atlantis? Yeah, that was. I went to Sweden to research on Olaf Rudbeck, okay. who is this. Um, 17th century Swedish uh, figure, um, natural philosopher. He discovered the lymphatic glands as a teenager, oh. and he was working by himself. His professor was too busy for him. He's in the alchemy lab. No joke. He's in the alchemy lab trying to turn things into gold. And Rudbeck was dissecting animals and uh, working on his own. And figured out how the lymphatic system worked and explained it. And it's the first achievement for a Swede in the history of science. And it's Rudbeck, a teenager. And then he, you know, built anatomy theater. He's an architect. He had a botanical garden. And it's one of the gardens that um, Carl Linnaeus later used when he reclassified a knowledge of plants. Now, Carl Linnaeus, another Swede, in fact, when he started, he was like, the, he, he, he was so promising he might be another Rudbeck. Uh-huh. And um, he had a, he discovered comets using instruments he built himself yeah. he wrote music for the king's coronation sang it himself uh, with his own voice supposedly drowning out all these kettle drums and trumpets and so he, but, he, but he brought all those talents to his search for atlantis which he was 100 percent convinced was in sweden and he uh you know, four volumes 2500 pages wow. of arguments i read every word of the old swedish it's translated into latin it's never been translated Gee, into anything whiz. except for latin did you write that down too um I did for my notes. Yes, yeah. I did. I, I did actually. When I was in Sweden for all his letters, yeah. I have all his letters um, that exist. There, there are actually quite a few of them. Um, in like they're they're in Stockholm, uh-huh. and I have copies of those. Um, probably 
uh, uh, like the Pecchio, unreadable to anybody except for me, probably. <laughs> but well, did did um, so so out of that, of course, came came your first book. Um, did did you have at the time? I mean, what was part of your Fulbright scholarship to write a book, or was it no? Uh, no. So so where where did did somebody say to you, or did you uh, figure it out yourself? Uh, this this could be a book. You know, that's interesting because I. Um, that was uh, one of those strange things. It was, uh, uh, I was, it was in Cambridge, actually, when I, when I had that, this idea. And I um, had it, um, a professor there who wasn't even one of my professors. He was in international relations. And I, I, you can just go to any lectures you like. And I, so I would go to any lectures that caught my attention. And, and he, he had great lectures. And I've always been fascinated with international relations. And I was talking to him afterwards. And... We went to have a beer, and he uh, said, asked me what I was working on. I told him, this old Alfred Beck, and, and he was like, you know, publishers love that. I was like, what? And uh, he, because what I'd heard, and no joke, I mean, the people that came to talk to our, the history students at Cambridge, they had sort of from the university press, Cambridge University Press, he's like, you know, you are writing, you know, none of you are writing anything that anybody's going to care about. Basically, is what he told us. So that's kind of what we've yeah. been told. And yeah. He's like, yeah, we have to sell a certain number of copies, and none of you are going to do it ever. Yeah. I mean, we're like, oh, wow, thanks. That I mean, was <laughs> the most depressing lecture right. I think I've yeah. ever heard. So uh -huh. that sort of thing is what we heard. So this guy says publishers like it. And I said, huh, interesting. And he told me about a book called Longitude, which is about how to measure longitude at sea. Mm -hmm. Doesn't sound, I mean, look, sounds interesting, yeah. but it was a bestseller in 26 countries. Yeah. Uh huh. And so, and fairly so, recently, yeah, yeah, I, I, I remember the title. I don't think I read it, but I, I do remember the the book. It's, yes, it's. I think it's been. It came out like in the. It, it was one of those. It was a really surprise hit. Uh -huh. I mean, it, it yeah. didn't get a big advance. It came originally uh -huh. in the '90s, but but it's been reissued. It's been very mm -hmm. so wonderful. Yeah, um, and so that was. So I, that was kind of in the back of my mind. I was like, I, cause I didn't even know you could do this. And so I was writing. I, I came back. I was teaching at UK, and uh, I, I, I remembered that. I was like, huh? I you know, maybe I'll maybe I'll try yeah. that. So I, I'd send it out yeah. to an agent and pick the biggest agency I could find and um, the top agent there, William Morris Agency, and so I'll send it to them. And then when they say no, I'll go down to the next list and go down. But but they called and she said she loved it and. She had it sold, and within within days. I mean, after we she taught me how to write a proposal, and then said, "Okay." You, you know, know, writers are um, infamous uh, for uh, taking, going to graduate school, taking courses, uh, connecting with other writers uh, on how to write a query letter, uh, uh, how to present to an agent. Uh, you make it sound so easy. No, no, I, I, I didn't know. I, I didn't know anything about it. And this was like before everybody had websites. And but I remember I had a friend of mine who went to Hollywood and he talked about agents and he was, was trying to break in. And so he, he talked about the William Morris agency. I, was, oh, I looked him up and they had, you know, uh, the Rolling Stones, the Bill Cosby, yeah. you know, just a, yeah. quite a list. It's like, well, I'll try them. And yeah. then, um, so Random represents you uh, publishing, and William Mars represents you for your other appearances. And 
Is that the way that works? Yes. Yeah. And the, the, the last book, um, with the Hitler, we've actually moved over to Norton. With Random House did all of my first books. Oh, okay. With Norton, or with the Hitler book, um, we that one went to, my agent decided to take it out for an auction. Uh-huh. Um, and that's yeah. where we ended up going to Norton. Yeah. And it was the editor, same editor who I had with, Oh, with from Random House, he got hired to run Norton. Oh, oh, and so we, yeah, and he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. And yeah. so um, we, we're glad we could yeah. follow him over to Norton. So you've mentioned a couple of times about about your love of reading. Uh, you read as a, a lot as a kid. Your 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 parents had books in the house, and and uh, I think people would be curious about what you're reading now. What what do you do? You read everything? Uh, do you do you read mainly uh, uh, history? I for years, uh, yeah, I love history. I read history all the time uh I, i've been branching out the last few years so i'll read uh, i'll read it widely i mean if i'm in a deep writing phase it's it's you know it's, it's like right now stockholm is, is i read the, my my notes from the archives and the the press about stockholm but when i, when I get away from that I'll, I'll read widely like a book that just came in uh two days ago not um not yesterday's batch was uh it's, it's a novel and i'm looking forward this is going to be one i'm going to treat myself to it's a mm-hmm. novel it's a ukrainian uh, novel it's about this uh writer who gets hired to write obituaries of people that are still alive and but then they start dying mm-hmm. and he's like being set up by the mm-hmm. mafia mm-hmm. and he's got this so it sounds like yeah. a great interesting story and yeah. um it's who sorry. would you say is your um uh, one of your most favorite writers See, oh, I have I have a lot. Um, let's see. I um, let's see. I that's a good question. One of my favorite novels of all time. I mean, I'm just crazy about this book. Is War and Peace? Is just wow. That's just a masterpiece. Did, did I mean, you I learn from from uh, the novel? Uh, or or was pro- it just I mean, for pro- pure probably, pleasure? Oh, I I just, I just love reading. It. It's yeah. just. It, takes takes me into another world and um i've that one is just uh-huh. fabulous that's um i have a lot of a lot of historians i think uh great writers um you also admire eric larson don't you yes yes yeah he's uh i always take that as a wonderful compliment when yeah people sure have, compare I've your work i made yeah. that mm-hmm. particularly with the serial killer book what an honor. Yeah, he's yeah he's on yeah he's he has a good nose for stories and yeah. he's um brings it to life and so another one is um like like that too who just was really impressive was uh um unbroken yes when i uh read that recently that was just, that's like the book uh-huh. of the probably probably the nonfiction one of the yeah. century so far i mean yeah. it's just just the, from both critics and uh-huh. um and the public yeah. and just it's, it's a great story i mean yeah. i've uh <laughs> was thinking wow this is how nice it is to be able to talk to somebody who um i actually was able to do like like 70 interviews or so i believe with uh uh the, the runner in the story but yeah yeah she, she's a great writer yeah she's yeah she's really well you know what i think um your being here uh says uh to so many people uh if you don't mind me offering this is that you're a kentuckian born and bred and you still live here. You don't have to seek your fame and fortune uh, in New York or L.A. or 
or Paris. Uh, you, you're, you're still right here. And uh, as I said in the first podcast, uh, maybe not easily recognizable in the, uh, in the grocery store. Uh, and maybe that's the way you like it. Uh, and, and it's so good to have you uh, a part of the writing community and, and part of the community period uh, in, in Kentucky. Oh wow! Thank you. Yeah, we we love yeah, we love it in Kentucky. I mean, we uh, except except for those six years in Europe, it's been here the whole time, and uh, we really enjoy it. And I mean, a lot of interesting things going on with Lexington now. I mean, I think uh, with t- my wife and I have talked about this a lot. You know, people talk about you know the Austins and the Seattle's. And, yeah. But Lexington has a lot of advantages too, and I think I think it's starting to catch on a whole lot more. I mean, used to you never. I, mean, I always liked the New York license plate just because of the colors. It was different. <laughs> used to never see them, but used to, you know, it's rarely a go a day without seeing like you know four or five of them now. Yeah. And I think just you know I think the word's getting out a yeah. little bit more. Um, Good. And uh, but like with the Kentucky Hall of Fame, I mean, you see all the the writers yeah. that they've had. I yeah. Mean, it's just yeah. It's, like, wow, it's amazing. I didn't it? know they was. I mean. Yeah. It really is. And, and uh, some of those uh, that we honored the other night at the Carnegie Center. Uh, um, like John Fox, um, I mean, they wrote in the 1800s, and 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 to think that they were so popular then, and and it it was John Fox, was it not, who who sold a million, yeah. <laughs> a million copies of two books, I think it was, and that's back back then too. I mean, translate uh, that yeah, today, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, <laughs> so that that literary uh, heritage that we hear hear about is alive and well in yeah. in Kentucky, and. Yeah. Uh, And thanks again for joining us on the podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. SoundCloud.